it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber, and I'm the Director of Marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, the CEO of Strata, talks with Zain Syed, a pharmacist who has worked in a variety of different settings, including infusion, clinic, inpatient, outpatient, and investigational drug services. Zane is also the founder of Digital Thoughts, a media company that bridges the gap between healthcare and technology through Zane's newsletter and podcast. Paul and Zane talk through how technology can play a bigger role in healthcare, why bridging the gap between clinicians and technologists is so crucial, and why the healthcare industry must be very careful when it comes to artificial intelligence. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. If you don't mind, though, I'd love to kind of start there as much as you're willing to share. Like, you write this newsletter, Digital Thoughts, I believe is what it's called, right? And and I stumbled across you on LinkedIn and subscribed, and that's how I then reached out to you. But like, I'm not trying to like steal your thunder here, but like, it's a labor of love. I mean, building any sort of newsletter is not... I think people think it's like, oh, easy. You just sit down with a cup of coffee and it's romantic. And you're like, no, I got to get this newsletter out today. What is it? So can you just maybe tell about your story? Like, how did you get into that? What makes you want to like actually give up your free time to make that newsletter? Yeah, I know. So I was born and no, I'm kidding. Uh, No, I mean, (laughs) it kind of all starts with like what I wanted to do. So when I got out of school, I went straight into the oncology world. But in that time, when I first got out, I've never been a person that's been like, okay, I see a problem and just take it for face value. Oh, this is just the way it is. Like, I've never had that attitude. of. So I was like, okay, let me see if I can fix it. I tried to figure out if there was anything out there. I couldn't find anything. So I was like, all right, let me try to do it. So I had my own startup. Unfortunately, we never made it out of the pre-seed round, but I just love that part of like being able to fix something and not just dealing with the problem. So that's kind of where my love for tech started. That then after we folded and I was doing that part-time as I was doing, was a full-time pharmacist, that kind of just never left me. Right. And I always saw these issues and I was, and I just couldn't find a way to fix it. Right. And I think that's one thing about healthcare people is like, we do have a God complex, right? Like most people are mainly it's focused towards patients. Right. And we're trying to like work around it. Hence why we're working so long. And that's why we do what we're doing. Right. But then like, for me, it was the patients. And on top of that, all the inefficiencies, I could not walk down a hallway and not see what I wasn't seeing. So I have had this like, all this in my brain for so long. So when I was making the transition into health tech, the reason why I started writing was because one of the people I talked to really early on told me, hey, Zan, it's great that you know all this stuff. Obviously, you know the tech part of it. You understand it, all these things. But when your resume goes across the desk, all they see is a pharmacist. They're not going to see you as a tech person. So you have to put yourself out there and gain that credibility. And I suck at social media, even though you think you guys might think I'm a little good at it, whatever. I'm terrible at it. And I was really scared. And so I just started because I was not, it wasn't a desperation, but it was like, this is what I want to do. So if I need to put myself into a little bit of discomfort, it's going to be worth it if I can, if it pays off in the end. So I just started writing about kind of like, it was almost like airing of grievances, (laughs) right? Like, hey, these are the things that I saw. And I was, and this is how I would fix it, or this is how I'd use tech to fix it. And I found that there was a community out there that was thinking like me. They just weren't talking about it as openly as it is. But, you know, people were like, hey, yeah, you can totally agree. Like, you know, I would get messages like, hey, I loved what you wrote. 
then the newsletter started because I ended up really enjoying writing because I was writing about things I wanted to, not a book that I never wanted to read, right, in school. So then I was like, okay, healthcare is super nuanced. There's a lot of things that I can't just, it's not like A plus B equals C, right? So that's when the newsletter started. It was like, okay, let me just pick topics and just dive as deep as I can. And the point of the newsletter is to kind of bridge the gap between the tech side and the healthcare side. Like both sides are scared or hate each other, whatever it is, right? They just, they don't get along, right? It's like oil and water, healthcare and technology. And for me, it's like me, like I want to be that bridge or build that bridge, show the tech people like, hey, this is what the clinicians are talking about. They're not just wet blankets and just saying no to you. There's a whole reason why they're saying no to you, right? There's a reason why they got to that point. And same thing with the clinicians, like, hey, these guys aren't trying to kill everything or they don't care about people. They do care about people. A lot of these people are coming in with personal stories that either happened to them or their loved ones. So they understand, but they don't have the whole picture. But guess what? The only way they're going to get the whole picture is if you let them through the door. And if you keep slamming the door in their face, they're never going to get the whole picture. But guess what? Tech is coming and you can't stop it from coming. So why not just shepherd it in and be the guided through rather than what happened with EMRs where we weren't at the table and now everyone's complaining about EMRs, right? It's like quoted as one of the number one reasons for a burnout. So and AI and all these things that are coming down the pipeline are going to be magnitude times more disruptive than EMRs ever were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, it's fascinating to hear you talk about this. And I, I mean, look, I, I know I'm probably drinking the Zen Kool-Aid <laughs> here, if you will, but like, you know, again, I'm not from healthcare and this whole industry is just fascinating to me because like you have all these smart people that genuinely mean well, but then in the next breath, like, almost can't get out of their own way. You know, it's, uh, it's always somebody else's fault. Anyway, I don't mean to gripe, but let's like, so from your perspective, you know, listening to you talk about it, you sort of kind of pulling this thread on sort of this disparity between like where healthcare tech is today versus where consumer tech is. And like, so I guess what I'm just trying to go is like what you just said there that really simplistically, but that I think is like maybe one of the more important points here is you said you wanted to be that bridge between those two sides. And you can pass on this question if you like, but I'm curious if you can like talk more about that. Because I think that right there, that one little phrase is probably the most powerful thing. Because I think it's also one of the least happening things right now in the industry. It is, it is this oil versus water thing. You know, it's like you got <laughs> both sides basically hate the other or look at the other with like suspicion. <laughs> like the bridge part of it is exactly what it sounds like. I think we need more clinicians in health tech, right? I think it, the times have gone where we can just kind of sit back and be like, oh, you know, I, I just went, you know, we spent, I mean, we spent like hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, years of our life giving up, a, we give up a lot, right? To get to this point. And then, then come out and be like, oh, actually, guess what? You have to do all these other things. And I think that's kind of where a lot of people push back at is like, I'm kind of at the pinnacle. And also there's an ego part of it too, right? Like when you're in medicine, you're a doctor or pharmacist, whatever you are, right? Like whether people like to admit it or not, there is some air of arrogance that comes along with it, right? And the way medicine is usually practiced is it's very patriarchal. Patriarchal. I can never say that word, but I don't know why you try. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's kind of like, hey, we tell you what to do. We are rarely ever told what to do, if that makes sense, right? The only time we're ever told what to do is from our technology, and that's, you know, I think that's some of it too, right? Like that's the only part of our career where we're told not, we can't do something or whatever. Technology is kind of driving the rules of how we should practice. And sometimes the way we're, the way we're guided is not, we don't agree with it, right? And again, now you're dealing with people that are really passionate about what they do. Like, it's kind of like telling you like something you're passionate about and you've done for the, your whole career. 
you know, and being told, hey, actually, you know what? Me coming in telling you like, hey, you know what, Paul, I don't know if I like that or not, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And that's kind of what it's been like. And I think that's where a lot of this comes in. And I think the, the bridge part is we need people kind of cross-pollinating back and forth. We need people from in, in the clinical side going into the tech side. There's a lot of tech people that come in, not shouldn't say a lot, but there's a lot more coming in to the clinical side. And I think a lot of them are being humbled and, and I'm not saying that in a mean way, but I think like, you know, you see Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they've all been trying to get into healthcare and they've been failing pretty massively, right? If you look at their track record in healthcare, it's been pretty bad, but like clinicians just don't go into tech. And I don't know why it is for me. I've all, well, I knew, I do know why a lot of times we just don't even know we can do it until I started my startup. I didn't even know it was a possibility. It sounds really stupid. Like I didn't think there was a place for me in technology, even though I love tech, I'm like the pseudo IT guy for my, my house, my, actually my family really. But I didn't know it was a possibility. I didn't know somebody like me could provide any value in tech. And I, that's one thing that I'm trying to do in terms of the bridge is like showing people like, hey, you can provide value. Not only can you provide value, you can create a very successful company with the help of obviously everyone else. We can't do it all on our own. But I think that's one thing that clinicians are starting to realize slowly as they're seeing other clinicians kind of rise the ranks and stuff. Yeah. And then the other thing that's happening in tech that I think is rubbing clinicians the wrong way, what that boom during COVID there's a lot of figurehead positions where they brought doctors or primarily doctors in. And I've talked to a couple of physicians that went back from tech and I asked them like, Hey, what happened? They're like, you know, I had no power. They weren't listening to me. They just needed an MD on their board. And so they could just get things across wrong. They just needed my name. They need my signature. That's it. After that, I had nothing. And I think that's also rubbed some of them the wrong way. Like you have a lot of brilliant minds that wanted to make that transition. And basically they were just used and that's not a good feeling either. That's not a good feeling. Yeah, I can't even imagine how bad that feels. So over the last 15, 17 years or so, um, my wife and I have angel invested in a little over 3,200 companies now. And just as a little aside, a couple of years ago, we did an analysis, just very basic analysis, where we looked at financial returns as an investor. You know, in other words, very simplistic view, what percentage of companies actually returned money, like had a successful exit, and what was their education level? And I uh, feel like somebody's going to reach out on the internet and punch me in the throat on this. But here's the fascinating part from the investor side, you know, me. And that is that we found that if you were to plot education level out on, you know, right, the probability of successful financial outcome for an investor, and then by proxy also for the founder itself, that probability of success increased all the way to the point of acceptance to a four-year college. And then it leveled off. Like, in other words, somebody that got accepted to college was just as likely to return money to us as somebody that graduated with their bachelor's four-year degree. And then here's the scary part. Then the probability started to drop as education level increased. And this was across, you know, 3,000 portfolio companies, you know, obviously biased, I'm sure, just because like, you know, whatever. But I just thought it was really fascinating because like, it's not like a, I'm not trying to like, you know, lose any friends here. I'm just saying like, it turns out the skills it takes to become a medical professional are not different than entrepreneurship, but um, like they're just, I don't know, they're just like, they're, they're slightly different. Like in other words, you need to be smart and hardworking and do that to kind of go through those. And you have to care enough about the mission and lives and things like that to put yourself through that. Pure entrepreneurship all the way on the other end of the spectrum, I think is about being willing to accept looking like an idiot for a long time before it actually works out. And those are two very different psychological profiles, I think. Not to say that people can't cross the bridge, by the way. I'm just saying, like, I think it's 
to your point earlier about why, you know, why people don't seem to cross the bridge between tech and healthcare and vice versa. I think that's a complex issue right there. But I think if you could like figure out how to build that bridge, which I think you're making good progress on that already, but that bridge is super important because it's not going to be like one savior or something like that. It's really going to be the collision of a lot of really smart people in different areas, you know, bouncing yeah. off of each other at coffee shops or whatever and you know, testing stuff out. I'm not even too surprised by that because I, I can only speak to the medical community. We are extremely risk averse, right? If you think about it, the people that go into medicine, also like, you know, our backgrounds being South Asian, I'm assuming you're South Asian as well. We have yep. two real options, right? Like you have no, you can't fail. You're either going to medicine, engineering, and that's it, right? And you're single focused. And as you're going through med school or pharmacy school or any of these schools, you can't be wrong. You just can't right? If you're wrong, you can potentially kill somebody. So that whole, that whole like taking chances is almost beaten out of you or completely out of you. Even if you were a risk taker at some point, as you progress through med school or, you know, me pharmacy school, it's all gone. Like you're going through rounds, people are quizzing you and you're in front of the patient and the doctor will turn around and ask you. And you're like, oh, and if you don't know, you're getting called out and now you look dumb in front of everyone. And then it's not even that you look dumb in front of everyone. Then you're people don't trust you as much. And if you lose trust in healthcare, you're done. Like if your patients don't trust you, your peers don't trust you, anything like that, no one's gonna take you seriously anymore, which kind of is the opposite side of like entrepreneurship where you have to just try things knowing you're gonna fail most of the times, but you're just going for that one, one hit where you can kind of progress, right? You're just, you're obviously trying things and in healthcare we can, it's just like a completely different mindset that exists. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, I'm not, that statistic really doesn't, it makes sense to yeah. me, honestly. And again, uh, the thing I want to stress there is like, it's not, I don't think it's insurmountable. I mean, no. again, not that my opinion matters. I don't think it's insurmountable though. I think I think that if we can at least just understand what the other, other side is worried about, then we can kind of like continue to build those bridges. Because one of the things I will absolutely agree with you on is that it must not be a good feeling to find out that you were sort of a puppet. Somebody was a puppet for the letters at the end of their name you know, that's just not a good feeling. It's just, I can't even imagine. Like, it makes me uncomfortable to even think about what that must be like. <laughs> yeah. So when you went down this path, I say, I find this really fascinating because I, again, like I think what you're doing, again, I know you don't know me and, and all that, but when I look at kind of what you're doing from the outside, so let me just set this up and probably for the first 30 seconds, you're going to be like, is Paul just offending me here? Is that the goal? And, you know, like, I, I promise you I'm not, but just hear me out for a second. very hard to offend me. Very hard to offend me. <laughs> you know, like healthcare, when I think about healthcare in broad strokes, healthcare today in 2023 in broad strokes feels a lot like where the consumer internet world was 10 to 15 years ago. Highly fragmented, you know, a little slower, a little, um, a little, just a lot of compartmentalization, just by almost every description I could tell you, it just feels like it's 15 years different or behind. But on the flip side, I just don't think it's going to take 15 years to catch up. I mean, most industries, when we think about technology on the whole, you said something earlier that tech is coming, uh, which is a really powerful statement. I think what's really fascinating, if you look at the arc of history, what's fascinating is, is that when technology comes in, whether we're talking about fire or pencils or printing presses or even EMRs and AI and open source. What's fascinating is that like humans as a species are really fascinating in the sense that like we vastly, vastly underestimate how fast change can occur and new things can come in. And at the same time, we 
vastly, vastly, vastly overestimate how long it'll take for current technology or current ways to die off. In other words, we think that change doesn't happen as fast as it does. But when you look at like the adoption of television over radio or the internet over all these other things, it just time and time again, it keeps happening. So when you think about like, like technology on the whole, you know, with your newsletter and kind of the, the stuff you're doing these days, what are some of the technologies? And I'm trying to leave the question broad, but what are the technologies and the, and the pieces of the industry that are moving quickly that excite you? And I'm trying to intentionally leave the question broad to see where you go with it. Yeah. I mean, this is not meant to be a cop out. I like, I think artificial intelligence is what excites me and scares me at the same time. The reason why it excites me is I think it can augment us a lot. Like, you know, like we always say like, you know, there's only one of us, but you know, with the use of proper use of AI technology, you can really, you know, multiply us, multiply us. And we can do a lot of things, help our patients when we're asleep, whatever, like all these things can happen. But the problem right now with AI is it's going down kind of like the you know, the sexy path where like, hey, we're trying to replace the clinician. And when he, anytime a company is like, hey, we're going to replace these clinicians or this part of your job or whatever, and it's like clinical stuff, that to me already tells me like, hey, these people don't know what medicine is. They don't know what the clinician is actually doing. If they come to me and saying like, you know, kind of going to the initial point, like if you want to get a clinician excited, tell them that you're going to automate the boring stuff like scheduling, note taking, scribes, you know, billing, all these things that we literally never went to school for. We went to school for clinical stuff, right? You know, we talk to a patient, we interview them, we figure out what's wrong with them and we try to fix it. We didn't go to school to write the, per I mean, I guess we got taught how to write the perfect note, but you know, we didn't go for <laughs> billing codes. We didn't go for all these other things, extraneous things. We don't, you know, scheduling, all that stuff, right? And all, literally all those things and almost every single industry are automated to a certain point. In healthcare, we just haven't done it. And there's a various different reasons for fragmentation being one of them. So that's one thing that really excites me a lot is AI. And I think that just in, I mean, and it's moving at such a rapid pace. It's like, I think people are not understanding how rapidly AI is moving with all the language models that are coming out. And once they start, I mean, okay, if a dumb guy like me can create a rudimentary chatbot that can, you can talk to your medical records and get answers with, and that's just me, the people that are way smarter than me, these things are already out there. And that's the stuff that's exciting to me, right? Like, for example, like one idea that I would love to see, and it was part of my startup was patients owning their own healthcare record. And with that, you have your own healthcare record in your own server, and you have an LLM that's attached to it. And now you can be like somebody who doesn't know, be like, hey, what was the last antibiotic I got? It'll tell you what antibiotic you got. Hey, when was the last time I saw a doctor, whoever? It'll tell you exactly what you saw them for and all that stuff. Like, those are the kind of things that excite me. Again, it's not going to like move the needle in any way, shape or form. But me as a clinician, those things are super, super valuable. Just the ability to grab information from this massive ether that exists of healthcare data and bring it whenever I want. That's what excites me the most. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. I think that, you know, for example, AI, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. And just as an anecdotal observation, I'll just say that some of the largest financial returns I've ever received from startup investing has been in technologies that looked like toys at the beginning. Yeah. And that's kind of where AI is today, mm -hmm. right? It's kind of like, oh, it can do a lot of cool things, but it hasn't quite found its commercial application yet. But that doesn't mean it's not going away or coming or coming or anything like that. It just means it just hasn't found its legs yet. And I, I think there's also a lot of parts to it, along with other technology that, for example, not only the healthcare people not understand, but I think a lot of people don't understand. Like as an example, 
as of the time of this recording right now, we're recording this mid-August in 2023. As of right now, Zoom, the company <laughs> that does a lot of remote video for everybody, changed their terms of service. And it doesn't matter what you believe, the facts are that the new terms of service basically say you have to accept or you can't use our system. And as by accepting, you would agree that all your content, video, audio, words, PHI, anything you talk about goes into their LLM now. And like, I don't want to be like a curmudgeon and say that's bad, but like, that's not what we signed up for. And now all of a sudden, doctors can't use it and all that stuff. So anyway, but this is where like, I think that intersection between technology folks and healthcare folks would have probably prevented some of this. Yeah, that's an example of losing trust with healthcare, right? Like, I think the way these systems can work is like, for example, like the idea that I'd said, like, you know, you own your own healthcare data, but it's the LLM is sitting on your server, like in your home network. It's not sitting up in the cloud, right? So what people don't realize with ChatGPT or whatever, when you ask it a question, everything you're talking with it, it's all being indexed by them, right? Everything is being indexed by them. So if it's connected to the internet in some way, shape or form, somebody is getting a hold of it and they're, so that's why like, you know, a lot of people don't, I just read a thing where, you know, doc, there was a doctor or something that was using chat GPT to write notes and they got in a huge trouble because of that reason right now, like PHI is in there. Yeah. Maybe they can't link it back, but if they ever got hacked, which actually they did actually very recently, people can get to that information. And that's the one thing I think people don't realize is like, yeah, I love cloud computing. I love like all this stuff, but with that comes some pretty grave consequences that the general consumer doesn't understand. A hundred percent. One of the things I hear a lot, so, you know, 10 second version of this, we, our businesses, we give away an EMR and then our business is, is the revenue cycle component of it behind the scenes. And one of the, one of the very common feature requests is AI, you know, Hey, can we do AI? Can we do this? Can we do that? And they'll throw around this jargon because they read it on Inc. Magazine or something like that. And I try not to be cynical, right? But what they don't realize is, first of all, when you think about AI, that it's, first of all, it's a hardware cold war. AI, none of this stuff works. Like whoever owns all the GPUs gets to build the LLMs. If you don't have that hardware, you're not going to get there. So part one, who owns the hardware? And then part two, does that data ever leave? Like, is it really your LLM? Like you can't just, a lot of these AI tools, I won't name names on here, but a lot of the tools that we hear clinicians using from time to time you don't have to be an expert to just sit there and, and read their terms of service, you know, but you can look at it and you can see it's a thin layer on top of OpenAI or somebody else. And all of a sudden you've just given away your data without knowing into some LLM that you really can't undo, you know, and then there's just profound implications of that now that people just aren't thinking about. But again, like, I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy here. I just think it's one of those things where like, if we can figure out how to like bridge this gap between tech and healthcare and really just get more people colliding and talking. I think a lot of these problems sort themselves out over time. So you've talked a little bit about trust too. You know, that's interesting. You know, we've been talking about other stuff, but you've mentioned trust a couple of times now, and you mentioned that, you know, there's ways to lose trust and stuff like that. On the flip side, how do you build that trust? You know, so if it's very easy to lose trust in healthcare, how do you build that trust? I think you build that trust by I mean, just like in general, right? Like when you're working with somebody, when you're working next to somebody, you build that trust over time, right? You don't just, and like, when, but when somebody flies in and tells you like, hey, do this and they leave, you can't really ever trust them because they never give you a chance to trust them. And I think that's one thing with tech companies is like, they're used to coming in and going, right? SaaS models, all these things, right? Like you buy it, 
and then you they leave and you kind of move on with your life. In healthcare, you can't do that. You have to ingrain yourself into the community. You have to understand because a lot of the problems that, like, for example, right, I talk to a bunch of startups and they'll say like, hey, we're solving this problem. And then I'll be like, hey, have you thought about this, this, and this? Well, no, we're just solving this problem, which is great. Like you should niche down, right? But the problem is if you don't solve, like you're solving X, there's a whole alphabet before that X, right? Like that has to be taken care of. So what ends up happening is your solution comes in and that problem still continues to happen. But what has to happen is us on the healthcare side, because now we're forced to use your solution, have to work around everything. We're already working around. If you look at healthcare, if you walk into a clinic, 90% of our job is just working around systems, right? To just to get our job done. So that's like one way to gain trust is like, that's why I say you got to start from all the way back to A, like just start from the ground level up. And that's how you're going to build trust is if they see you at the ground level with them, working with them, moving with them, and you will eventually get to X, but you can't build that trust if you start at X and just say, we're not going to take care of anything else. Hey, you have to just find a different solution. It works great and it works fine in consumer products, but it just can't work in healthcare because as fragmented as our system is, 100% it's fragmented. Trust me, we get really frustrated as well. We can't Mm -hmm. keep fragmenting it more and more. But the biggest thing is just, you know, ingraining yourself in there. You know, I tell people like, hey, just call up a clinic, talk to a doctor and be like, hey, can I shadow you for a day or two? I mean, you might hear a bunch of no's, but you'll be surprised how many of them will actually say yes. Because you know what? In the end of the day, we also want to make our jobs easier. So you're not asking for anything. Just go and be like, hey, let me just watch you. I bet you in that couple hours, your mind will be blown as to what the hell is happening in the back end. Why your doctor is late for half an hour. It's not because he's sitting back doing some Sudoku puzzle. It's all these other <laughs> things, right? And I think that that's the part that's missing is empathy for our side. There's no real empathy. There's a lot of empathy for patients where there should be. 100% there should be empathy for the patients. But guess what? The healthcare ecosystem, there's three main players, right? You have the payers, you have the patients, and then you have the clinicians. Everyone always forgets about the clinicians, but guess what? Who is the person that's going to be pushing your product to the patients, maybe even the payers? The clinician is. So if you don't take their workflow into account, why should we trust you? You know, like, why should we trust you, right? You've completely forgotten about us. If somebody tells you to come in, like, would you trust them if they told you to use something and they haven't even empathized with your situation? No, I mean, when you say it, it makes so much sense. So on a, um, in a related vein, by the way, and again, this is not meant to be like a promotion on us, but, you know, just as an example, I think that that kind of comes out of this is like, I think a lot of the industry, unfortunately, has also become full of marketing jargon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, we're the best and industry leading. It's kind of like the, what do you call it? The, um, when you, you know, let's just say you happen to turn on your TV and you're like, you know, watching and then an ad comes on for like, you know, a truck and they'll be like, you'll, you'll see this truck like jumping through the mud or whatever. And then it'll say, and it's the number one in its class or whatever. And then in the tiny little print, it's like the class is defined as like three wheeled pickup trucks that are bright green only. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what? It's a category of one. <laughs> what are we talking about here? And so when I think about our efforts here, one of the things we've talked about internally, I wrote this like 27 page strategy doc. And our company's like over a decade old now. And if you were to boil our marketing strategy down as it relates to trust, it really comes down to two things. We want to be smart and approachable, approachable being the key thing, you know, like let's take the meeting, let's help. Even if we can't help with our product, we can help with our time and point them in the right direction. Second thing is we show, don't tell. So like reimbursement rates, like there's a lot of like, there's, for example, lack of price transparency. There's a lot of lack of transparency in this industry. 
And you and I can probably shout from the rooftops all day about how it should be better, how it should be X or it should be Y. And a lot of other people do too. But we've just started to like expose it. We're like, well, let's just anonymize and aggregate the data and let you guys, let everybody just see, you know, what's that payer paying for that CPT code in Kansas? You know, and you can just see it. And I think that that's, I hope uh, over the long term, like becomes one little part, a way that we can help build a bridge too. Is it like, I always tell people, it's like, I genuinely don't care if somebody uses us. I genuinely don't. I just want to make sure that like, at least at the, on the RCM level that you get paid for every minute you worked. Because again, it's just this weird disparity. It's like, there's a lot of these protections for most employees in this country. You know, you stiff them one penny and like that federal employment law comes in, but somehow healthcare uh, professionals, uh, you know, kind of have gotten to this point where they're just writing off 10, yeah. 20, 30% of their money. It's just insane to me. Yeah. When I was diligencing this industry, one of the stories that really sticks with me is uh, when I was diligencing this industry, I've been seeing the same general practitioner for like, I'm 42 years old now. So like 40 years, my parents found this guy when he graduated Howard University years ago. And um, anyway, like this is a couple of years ago, I was like reaching out to him for my annual, you know, whatever checkup. And he wasn't accepting new patients anymore. He had this own little practice, nothing crazy. You know, I'd always gone to it. Anyway, I, but we have a good relationship. So I texted him. I was like, hey, uh, it says I can't schedule with you, man. What's up? And he goes, now he's like 65, 70 almost, right? And he goes, um, he said something at the time. He goes, yeah, I sold the practice to this healthcare system here in Virginia where I live. He's like, yeah, I sold the practice. And I was like, okay, can I still see you? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just don't schedule it. Just come in and we'll deal with it on the side or whatever. Anyway, as we were talking, I was like, why'd you sell your practice? And I won't bore you to death, but it was fascinating to me just from a learning perspective to your point about he's not just sitting there playing Sudoku in the back. I goes, why'd you sell this thing? You know, and he goes, um, he said something like, look, man, I played the game. I went to school. I got into all this debt. I worked at another general practitioner. I saved up. I started my practice. I met you and your family. I did all these things. And he goes, but like 20, 30 years ago, when you walked out of the building, at the end of the visit, finished up, filled out that form, and we mailed it off and never thought about it, and, and it came back. And then he's like, but then the rules changed. And, you know, it's like he kind of equated it to the TSA. And I know this is going to get me in trouble here, but he kind of equipped it. He used the TSA as an example. He's like, he's like, I get, I, like one guy like tries to like sneak a bomb through, and now we're all taking shoes off. And he's like, now just imagine in my industry, he's like, then I had to build a billing team, and then I had to do this, and I had to do that. And then he's like, Finally, he's like, at what point do I give up and say, like, I didn't sign up to do this. I didn't sign up to have a billing team of six people trying to figure out how to finance everything. You know, and so it was just fascinating. It's like he got worn down. I just remember leaving that meeting thinking, like, this was one of the most high energy. I just remember that doctor always being, like, high energy even when I was a kid. And this guy that I was sitting in a room with when he's, like, 65 was not the same guy. He was burnt out, beaten down, and just spread thin. And I don't know, it was just tragic. It was just tragic just to see like how it all hurt him. But anyway, I don't know why I went on that tangent there. But the point is though, is that like, it's just fascinating to me, this industry. All right. So let me come back to you though, because I think this is really fascinating. So you, um, okay. So there's a lot of different ways we can go here. Like I'm personally really interested in kind of how you think about content because it's just very fascinating to me and because I'm a nerd about that stuff. But in terms of like your, like when I think about your professional training, so you are and I, I mean this with all the respect in the world, like a pharmacist by training. I mean, you are, you've crossed all the, your brown parents are, were very happy, I'm sure. Like my, you know. They still ask me, I can still go back to med school though. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. 
So like, what's the, like, you know, so you've done all that, but what's the future for you? And I, I obviously like, I know that's a big question, right? But like, you're dabbling in content now, you're a professional with a capital P and I got all the letters behind your name, but like, you want to build this bridge, but what's the future? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, so one of the things that kind of left out of my story was uh, the reason why I wanted to transition, the reason the like kind of nail in the coffin with me for transitioning into tech was I was sitting there with my student while I was working and he asked me, hey, Zan, you have an amazing job. I could see myself doing this for the rest of your life, my life. Do you see yourself doing this for the rest of your life? And I couldn't say yes. I said no. I didn't know why I said no. I just knew I said no. And I kind of had to figure out why I said no. And it brought me back to my startup. And I was like, man, I was really happy doing that, you know, working overnight and getting paid zero money. So there was something to that. My goal in my career, and this might sound really simplistic or really naive or whatever, I want to get to a point where I've helped build a system to where the person sitting in that chair that's a clinician says yes, that they can say, yes, I am where I want to be. I spent all this money, all this time getting to this point. And I'm happy where I am. Kind of to your point with the doctor, he was so excited to get out of school. You know, you spend so much time, you give up so many things. I remember when I finished pharmacy after residency, I started going to like parties. People were surprised my mother had a son. I mean, that's how, how that's how removed I was. And I'm a pharmacist. Yeah. Doctors are even <laughs> worse, right? So like, that's the kind of stuff that we're giving up. I want to be able to be like, hey, they asked, the student asked them, they're like, yes, I can do this for the rest of my life because there's it takes so much time and so much energy to get to that point. And you're really doing something that you truly love, but it's all the extraneous stuff that, you know, like the billing and all this other stuff. And that's what I mean, like the boring stuff. Like, let's get back to four, 30, 40 years ago where all the doctor has to do is sign out the chart and they're done because all the systems are doing everything in the background. And, you know, they might not be 100% right, but guess what? Humans are also not 100%, right? That's the one thing I never understood with this whole argument with, you know, AI or automating things. Oh, well, we, I'm not talking about patient, things that touch the patient. I'm not talking about that, but like all the other things in the background, like the error rate in billing is extremely high, extremely high. Like, for example, like me, like we had an issue. We had a bill of like tens of thousands of dollars. I knew it was wrong because I'm in the system. I understood like, hey, this doesn't make any sense. So I was arguing for like three months. And eventually I got to a point where I got to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that was an emergency situation. They, they typed a couple of things in. Okay, it's only 10% of that bill. Imagine if I didn't have my background, right? I would have been paying those tens of thousands of dollars, right? And that wasn't an automated thing. It was a billionaire, yeah. right? And yeah. the only reason I got to the bottom of it was because I knew that it didn't make sense to me. Right. So like, that's what I mean. Like, but to answer your question, that's why my future is. I mean, however it goes, I've stopped making goals for myself. And this might sound really dumb, but the reason why I stopped making goals for myself is because when you get to a goal, then I always was felt like, now what? Right. And so like now I just kind of have like, hey, this is kind of where I want to end up. And every step that I take should get me to that point. If it doesn't, I'll maybe say yes, should say no. I still say yes to a lot of things, but that's what I'm doing. I'm just, I have a path that I've kind of, it's not really predefined, but I just have a general area where I want to go. And however I get there, I get there. I don't have real goals or anything is, again, that might sound really dumb to people, but for me, it makes sense. Every time I've made plans or goals or something like that, things always change, right? You're always freaking out about, oh, I can't, I need to get here. I'm like, no, man, it's just, you just go with the flow and just move on with your life. You know, it's that right there is an, okay, so I know people don't listen to our show for I mean, they got Tony Robbins for what I'm about to say, but let me just say it anyway. I think that most people worry so much about being absolutely right 
because whether you're in healthcare or not, that's kind of what school teaches us, right? Did you pass the test or not? Are you absolutely right or are you not? You know? And I think when it comes to careers, though, it's more important to be directionally right because there is no real destination. Like, if you had asked me 10 years ago if I'd be doing this, this was not on my radar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I didn't know what RCM was. In fact, the only reason I ever, like, even raised an eyebrow was, like, when an EOB showed up in my mailbox and it was like, yeah, that free EpiPen that we gave your son after birth. Uh, yeah, we build your insurance like 40 grand for it. And I was like, what? Things like $25 at Walmart. What, how mm-hmm. does that work? <laughs> yeah. You know? So, but I think it's important that this idea of like professionally just setting these directional goals and, and then just kind of putting one foot in front of the other and just getting there. So you mentioned a couple of times now you had this startup and it, you know, I think you mentioned it didn't work out for you and stuff like that. And obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but if you had to do that all over again, or let me let me actually rephrase the question a slightly broader way. So let's say somebody listening right now is thinking about starting a company in the healthcare space. And just for the sake of discussion, put aside whether they're, they come from tech or they come from healthcare, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give them? What should somebody do now if they want to start a company in the healthcare space today in 2023? Do everything I did. Not, do the exact opposite of everything I did. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I mean, but honestly, yeah, I made literally every <laughs> single mistake. But I would start with just validating your idea. Don't just start building. I think that's one thing that a lot of people like falter with. Like they just start building. They see an issue and you get really excited. Hey, I'm going to fix this issue, right? And they just start building. Don't start building. Validate your idea. Ask the question. And then I think the user interview part is really foreign to a lot of people because people will go in saying, hey, Paul, I'm building this. X company, what do you think? And obviously you being a good human being, don't want to hurt my feelings. Like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. You're going to the moon. It's a billion dollar idea. Guess what? Uh When I launch, guess what Paul's not doing? Signing up for my billion dollar idea because he didn't believe in it. Like, I think there's this book called The Mom Test and it's an amazing book. It's really small. Everyone should read it. And it goes through like, how do you ask the question? You never tell people what you're building. You just ask them like, hey, have you ever experienced this issue before? Ask for like personal details because people are generally not going to lie about what they've gone through. Have you ever dealt with this? Yeah. Okay. Yes, I have. Did you guys try to find a solution? Yes or no? If they say yes, then you keep going. How much were you looking to pay for the solution? And then you can kind of find out, okay, is this a big enough problem where somebody's going to pay, look for some, a solution? Okay. They look for it. Is it even a bigger enough problem to where they'll pay for the solution? Because in the end, if you want to build a business, you have to make money. And this sounds really, this might sound really hard, like really crass of me, but you can go in with the best intentions, but if you're not making money, you don't have a business. You know, you have a charity, right? Those are two different things. Yeah. And that's not crass at all. I think it's sort of, I think that a lot of people talk about entrepreneurship, but very few actually understand the reality of it. And, you know, another, and to your point, you're right. Like nobody's going to say to your face, that that's a terrible idea. Cause it's, it's just hard. It's hard yeah. to like look somebody in the eye and say, I don't like that. But I think your idea of just talking to as many practitioners as you can or clinicians or whoever the customer is, I think is is smart. And I think seems like a really foreign concept in the healthcare industry. But to be fair, it was a foreign concept in the tech world 15 years ago. I mean, what you're talking about, I think, obviously, there's probably a lot of people that, you know, came up with this. But I don't think it was until about 2010, really, when the lean startup momentum sort of hit. And the core idea behind the lean startup was go talk to 10, 20, or 50 customers. Yeah, because if something is really bothering somebody, you'll know right away, right? You'll know right away, like, hey, 
this is a real issue because mm-hmm. a lot of the people, and also when you're doing user interviews, you should you should generally ask them the same questions. I'm not saying just do like an interview, like boom, 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 question one, two, three, like guide them into different things, but uh, you should generally ask them the same questions as well. So you can kind of, you know, compare things, but yeah, it's really wild to me that, uh, and again, I didn't do it either. I just was like, hey, this is a problem I've seen. And I started with, hey, I'm thinking about building this. What do you think? And everyone told me yes, right? Like, it's a great idea. Guess what? I didn't get any funding. I didn't get any of those other stuff. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, you know, a lot of people said it was a great idea and, you know, let us know if you need any help. And, you know, and, and it's just a, it's just the reality of it, right? Like, again, people are generally, whatever we see in the media all the time, generally speaking, majority of people are very nice and they're going to be cordial and they're not going to want to hurt your feelings. We've all done it in all of our entrepreneurial journeys. We've all done it, right? At least one time you're like, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if, yeah. and then you just spend like the next year of your life and you're like, what in the world? Exactly. <laughs> you make that mistake exactly one time. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com.